0: Peter Satoris, PhD, is an anthropologist, educator, writer, filmmaker, and development professional whose research examines the various ways societies imagine the future differently. He is a research affiliate at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at SOAS, University of London, as well as the visiting lecturer at the University of Bath and supervises at the University of Cambridge. He is the author of monographs, Visions of Development, published in 2016 and Educating for the Anthropocene, coming in 2022, as well as the director and producer of the 2012 documentary film, The Undiscovered Country. He's a graduate of the United World College of the Atlantic, Dartmouth College, and Cambridge University, where he was a Gates Cambridge scholar. Peter is the founder and director of Scale Research Group, a London-based consulting startup focusing on research that supports scaling up ethical and sustainable international development programs. Satoris' work has been featured on The Guardian, the BBC, and the University of World News. Welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. So in your work, uh, you're
1: previously, and I I guess you still continue to to work in a documentary film, uh, now an academic, you address some of the most important issues of our time, uh, the Anthropocene, and you raise the questions of how can we educate for the Anthropocene. So I I suppose, tell us a little bit how we might modify our current education models. And really, you use an important word, and I think it's, it's so true, is that we don't approach this life with enough humility so just tell us in some ways how we might reimagine the future and our education system
2: well that's a huge question Uh, so i'll I'll maybe just try and touch on some of the themes that that i've been that i've been working with Um, on one level it's it's a political question i think we have um with the sustainable development goals and with the kind of mainstream this course um, around um, the environment and the future of the world, we have this assumption that education is going to help us achieve a more sustainable world. Um, and if you look at, uh, you know, what is what is getting published by UNESCO and other organizations in in this area, it's it's very clear that that there is this assumption that you know education is um, sort of a tool in our toolkit. But I very much question that assumption uh, because I think the current education systems that we see around the world um, you know, are run by governments for the most part who themselves um, are not pursuing policies that are particularly environmentally sustainable. And so I suppose the question that I'm asking is, you know, how can we expect these education systems to undermine the policies that the very governments um, that are uh, running these systems are pursuing? Um, And so in that sense, I think uh, educating for the Anthropocene perhaps is is different from schooling for the Anthropocene. Perhaps we have to think about a distinction between education and schooling, um, disconnect the two concepts and ask ourselves what other forms of education are there, uh, but also ask ourselves what is maybe wrong with our schooling? How can we make schooling uh, an actual tool for educating for the Anthropocene? How can we uh, bring environmental sustainability into schooling as opposed to socioeconomic sustainability, which is what I think we currently see as the dominant force behind sustainability in, in schools, you know, that we are trying to sustain the socioeconomic system as opposed to the planet itself. You also touched on this question of humility, which uh, is, I suppose, maybe slightly less political and a bit more cultural. How do we, as a culture, how do we approach uh, the environment? How do we approach the planet? And going back to education, you know, within our education systems, uh, are we um, emphasizing our arrogance uh, or are we emphasizing our humility in the face of planetary scale challenges? And I think at the moment, from uh, what I've seen in a number of countries, this huge focus on the natural sciences, um, on hard science as a way of mastering nature. and perhaps less of the focus on social sciences humanities uh, that that maybe allow us to reflect a bit more deeply about our relationship um, more fundamentally with the planet uh, i think is is a trend that that is very much pronounced uh, both in high-income and and low-income countries Uh, you know this idea that we need more engineers scientists um, but you know we don't need people to be to be thinking um, you know more more deeply about sort of more philosophical questions I think that that is very much a trend, you know, that that we can see accelerating through the pandemic, and I think beyond the pandemic as as well. Um, and so I think this is maybe another another big assumption that we need to reevaluate, you know, whether this this focus is actually what we need in this time.
1: And you mentioned philosophy, and you're from Slovakia, that's right.
2: I was born in what was then Czechoslovakia, now now Slovakia, but I've actually spent at this point most of my life in other countries, so I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of a world citizen, you could say.
1: Yes, as am I. And in Europe, um, philosophy is emphasized a little bit more. I'm in Paris, and in a certain, I guess, in Anglo-Saxon or in America, it is not emphasize as much and philosophy is definitely something and and the humanities uh, generally generally something that has been sidelined as you mentioned but i can't help but thinking and reflecting on some of these problems that we are now facing if we had uh grounding in philosophy and really you know really taking it into our lives not just living in the classroom you know Thinking through what, what what are the consequences of our actions that we might have avoided some of these problems that we're now facing.
2: Yes, I I, I agree with you. I think um, we maybe are asking these questions now, or at least some of us are trying to to ask these questions. But in in some ways, you know, it's it's a bit too late. And I think you know we it would have been much better, I think, to ask these questions um, ahead of the time. And I think this this sort of blind faith that we have in Um, in science and and engineering, uh, you know, the the idea that somehow, you know, through the scientific method, through experimentation, through numerical data, we are able to grasp the world and that the the sort of complexity of the world can be reduced to that. um, I think is is a pretty, pretty big assumption and goes back to this idea of of arrogance. Um, you know, sometimes you you might run an experiment, you know, you might come up with a scientific finding. Um, but you may not necessarily be uh, fully in control of how that finding is used further down the line. Um, I mean, you know, typical example, you've got, you know, scientists um, in the 20th century whose work contributed to the dimension of nuclear weapons, who would then very much regret that their work was used in that particular way. And so, you know, at the time that they came up with their findings, you know, this looked like a sort of neutral, neutral scientific finding. Um, but then once that finding you know enters the political arena of the time, you know, then you you know you you'd have no control as a scientist over what happens with it. And I think that is ultimately what we see with a lot of natural sciences, you know that that there is this idea of political neutrality um when you know in fact, social sciences and humanities teach us that nothing is is politically neutral. I mean everything really is serving some kind of a political agenda in the in the world. and so, I think you know questioning what is that agenda and and trying to have a bit more foresight um, about the longer term consequences of of some of these findings inventions um, would have as as you say likely helped us you know avoid some of the trouble that we are in right now.
1: And yes, there seems to be and there has been for a number of decades, uh, belief in innovation for innovation's sake, you know, if you can do it, if you can, you know, have these technologies that will allow you to, you know, drag more fossil fuels out of the earth or or whatever the new invention is that if you can do it, it must be good and it's new. And uh, but then we see the consequences now we see you know, around the world, but particularly in the developing world, uh, you know, 8 million people a year dying from air pollution. And our innovations are really coming back to to bite us. And you raised another question when you're asking, you know, how can we um, reimagine our education models? I guess it's also the uh, evident question is, you know, what are the goals or what should be the goals of education?
2: Well, that's a big question. I think, you know, obviously it depends who you ask. Uh, but one of the points that I make in my work is that when you look at all the philosophers who have looked at this question and all the all the big educators, you know, big sort of big names in in the field of education, I don't think any of them envisioned the kind of system that we that we have today. So, you know, some of them um, might talk about, you know, for instance, if you take someone like John Dewey, who is quite an influential figure talking about the relationship between democracy and education you know the, the role education plays in a healthy functioning um, democracy or you know you you might go further back in time and you might look at some of the Greek philosophers who talked about education's role in self-discovery for example you know the way that education helps us discover who we truly are you know know thyself um, sort of as a, the paradigm, you know, driving, driving education. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a huge spectrum and, you know, I could, I could keep going, you know, all day long. Um, but I don't think any of these, any of these philosophers, any of these sort of big ideas about what education should be doing in a society, um, are really reflected in our contemporary model. I mean, our contemporary model essentially is looking at the needs of the, uh, socioeconomic system—it's—it's it's looking at the needs of neoliberal transnational capitalism, and it's adapting to those needs. It's basically saying, you know, whatever whatever the job market, the labor market needs, we are going to produce that. We are going to be producing people who can help, you know, fill the positions that you know the engine of growth capitalism is demanding uh, of the education system. And so in this sense, education basically fails to to sort of put a mirror to the system, right? It's sort of just in in a very docile way, sort of bows in front of the system and says, okay, we're just going to do whatever is is needed. Uh, We're not actually going to try and be in the driver's seat here. We're not going to try and think about how the system maybe could be changed um, or questioned or reflected upon. We'll simply fulfill the needs that, that the system makes of us. And I think this is something that you would be hard-pressed, I think, to find uh, a philosopher, you know, who would subscribe to this uh, view. And I, I just wonder in my own work, I, I often think about, you know, how did this happen? How did education become so incredibly narrow and and superficial and just devoid of, um, you know, these larger ideas that historically have driven the discourse of, of education? And there's certainly a history behind how, how this happened. Um, But I'm also sometimes surprised at um, how few people seem, at least on the surface of it, bothered by this. I think, you know, this really is something that should bother us.
1: Yes, and I think it must have something to do with being rooted or being hand in hand with our industrial models. And so education began to be a reflection of that and to feed the workers who would fill those jobs that we needed at those times. And of course, jobs are changing now too. And there has been somewhat of a push towards uh, measuring um, happiness, although it's not something, you know, when they analyze the success of a country or the GDP, but it doesn't take into account, you know, how much in harmony with our environments we are, how happy or how collective we might be as a society. Uh, I think some people are are measuring it, but it's usually modeled on success, your income, disposable income, these things, but it doesn't um, take into factor some of these other intangibles that I think are equally important and i would think and i would hope that education would take that into account as well as training people for their future jobs which which we don't know anyway jobs are changing so there's so much with automation that you won't even know if you're 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 educating yourself for a job that'll even exist in 10 years
2: yeah no i think i think that's that's absolutely right in in some ways actually the model of um you know being able to, to predict what kinds of jobs are going to be needed is disappearing in front of our very eyes. And I think we are going to be faced you know, um, in a fairly short amount of time with a question of how to reinvent education simply because uh, education as it is currently conceived is, is already obsolete, I think, in, in many places and very fast becoming even more obsolete. And so in that sense, this could be an opportunity. This could be an opportunity for us to ask ourselves in this kind of a post-industrial automated economy, uh, what kinds of roles could education play? Could we maybe reclaim some of that meaning behind the word education that that perhaps is is there in the background but just doesn't translate into into reality? Um, but of course, we we also need to remember that you know the world is a very diverse place, and there are especially in low-income countries the the this this whole discussion around automation and sort of post-industrial economies necessarily. Uh, you know going to be unfolding in the same way that that it might unfold in in high income countries so I think uh this this complexity of the the different needs of different societies and the the idea that we still have not eliminated poverty we are actually very far from eliminating poverty and that education plays a role in that uh, there certainly is convincing evidence you know to to show that even if the the jobs that young people who go to schools in low-income countries are able to get uh, may not be great jobs but they they might be jobs that allow them to get out of poverty and so i think in that sense um, it's also important for us you know not not try to be too utopian about this and to also recognize that there are parts of the world large parts of the world where at the moment um we we don't have much of an alternative to the current education system as a way of helping lift lift people out of out of poverty and that also is something that I um, think about a lot in in my own work, and you know, trying to not lump education into this this one homogeneous category, but but also try to be sensitive to the fact that education serves many different purposes in in many different places, and um, by sort of radically changing that, that, that could also then have you know collateral damage uh, on people's livelihoods and and so on. And this is a very 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 complex question uh and i think we need to have you know country specific region specific context specific approaches uh to to how we rethink education um you know to to make sure that we don't exacerbate things like poverty
1: yes exactly and and if we do happen to live in a country where we're fortunate enough to try to prioritize happiness or a sense of harmony, uh, you you raise the question of uh, meaning, you know, and what gives life uh, meaning. I was discussing this with someone who you might not think would be having a lot of theories about education, but uh, the other day with a, a Colombian jazz harpist, but he thinks a lot about education because he homeschooled his children and, his critique as an artist, as a musician, is that he found uh, the problem with uh, education systems. They'd have to take so many different classes as though you w- couldn't really know about the whole world, when really he had found at a very young age, which he was lucky to, that many of us take many years to find it, was his passion and his ability with the, with the harp. And so he just wanted to spend all of his time just learning how he could be a great harpist. And now he's a virtuoso, and he, he passes on this passion to his children. Children. and uh, so it's very nice to see a whole family involved in, in the same way that other apprenticeships or you know it, historically families have been involved in uh, one uh, discipline and one vocation so yeah so he has a, a very particular artist critique on our education model being industrialized and preparing people for work in factories uh, that kind of thing that was a lot of interest to him and He could just see himself being a wage slave. You know, he he followed that route. So he made his own path. So many of us are not lucky to have that freedom or access to something, uh, but he made his own way because he certainly wasn't wealthy. This is something I think about a lot with the creative process, which is our parent project, is that how we can, you know, reinvent education systems or make them a little bit more customized as though... Like we can't all do the homeschooling. I mean, I realize the education system is also part of it is kind of child minding for a lot of people so that people can go out and work and that their children can be in school and someone's looking after them. Uh, so we don't have the luxury of homeschooling, but how are some ways we might customize our education models to really find the talents that each one of us possess
2: well, I think a good place to start is just to recognize the need to to, to do this. I think at the moment um, there is there is very little in, in lots of countries around the world, uh, in in terms of education policy, in terms of teacher training pedagogy, that actually prioritizes this idea of individuality of each person and and finding you know what it is that 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 person finds fulfilling and what they might be able to uniquely contribute to to the world, um, I think that is uh, something that perhaps we, we might see a lot in expensive private schools that pride themselves on uh, bringing up you know future leaders and and that you know they, they sort of really invest into trying to, to identify the strengths um, that that each young person might have. Um, but I think even in those contexts, you know, still the, the idea of leadership is is somewhat uh, shaped by the the, the larger um, socioeconomic system that we that we live in. So I think if we start by recognizing that actually this is an important goal of of education, um, then we will end up with I think actually a very different education system in terms of all the way from how we train teachers to. Um, architecture of schools, you know, how we, you know, how we organize the physical spaces in which children learn, even um, in some cases, um, not thinking of the school as a physical space, uh, you know, a a sort of a a building, but maybe an outside space, more of a, more of an interactive model of of learning. So I think there is, there's certainly a lot of, lot of potential here to change things, because I think the system currently is just so far from this goal. uh, But unfortunately, from from what I've seen, um, there just isn't uh, in in many places, and again, I don't want to generalize and and sort of put the whole world in in, in a single category, but I think in a lot of places, there just isn't even a recognition that this is what the education system should be doing. And so I think we need to start with just just making sure that this is actually something that um, policymakers, people who, who actually have the power to change things, um, but that includes parents, because, you know, when parents demand um, certain, a certain kind of education um, that in itself can can become a force for change, um, that, that this is just something that is that becomes more central to the entire discourse of education. And I think a lot of a lot of changes. Is-
1: and I'm a big uh, believer in interdisciplinary education and really making education. There are several you know, you mentioned Dewey, there are a lot of different education models where play and work and education has not been separated so that you didn't almost realize that you were learning or working. And I think that particularly when we need to call upon our reserves and really try to, uh, and this was something else I want to ask you about, like, what is intelligence? Because uh, before, like we were aligning it with a kind of efficiency and ability to pass tests, but I tend to think it has something to do with creativity and finding things that were there and we weren't seeing or nobody else saw them and just discovering them. Uh, but so yeah I really believe in this kind of sense of play I and mean, when you can see that we can do great things collectively and individually when we ha- we just don't even realize we're doing it or if you if you just if you look at the natural world you wonder like how can birds fly thousands of miles like an incredible artistry and you know without touching ground how do they buoy themselves well there must be some pleasure in it i can't speak for them but uh, there must be something that they get that's akin to artistry and that gives them the energy where they don't even realize they're expending the energy. And, and I think, I believe, I've seen it, when people have a sense that they're creating something, they're doing something beautiful, or uh, they don't feel like it's work and drudgery, we can do so much more. And we, as you say, we particularly need to do that now in the Anthropocene, the climate crisis. We need to make this seem not like a burden, but like a pleasure and a joy.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I think that that's certainly certainly one way to 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 look at it, which uh, I I agree with. In my own work uh, as a, as a researcher as an anthropologist, uh, when I've worked with um, young people in schools, I uh, used a, a particular set of set of methods that were um, inspired by documentary filmmaking and um, and visual anthropology, um, where I was working with young people to really try and visualize different worlds, you know, alternative futures. And I, I found that when when they were immersed in that uh, you know the process itself uh, became became a form of learning and a, and a form of um, and a form of discovery um, I used this particular filmmaking method um, which is borrowed uh, from the Australian um, ethnographic filmmaker David McDougall who um, basically developed this idea of sort of observational, Observational filmmaking um, done by young people done by kids, because he believes that um, young people possess knowledge that we as adults may not be able to grasp um, through words, through verbal expression. So if we have a conversation with a child, if something is lost in that. Um, you know, we, we may not be able to fully um, uh, appreciate, you know, the imaginative potential or or you know the, the knowledge that the child has that we, we don't have. And the idea with this method is that you basically uh, teach children basic filmmaking techniques, um, but you, you know, you focus on really paying attention, you know, to, to, to what they're doing. And in my case, the way I I tried to achieve that was by using fairly professional grade equipment, which required um, children to really um, think, you know, very carefully about the choices that, that they were making. Uh, so, you know, with just, you know, basic things like Composition, focal length, um, audio levels, you know all these all these um, parameters that you have to set when you're working in manual mode with professional cameras. and um, and I found that that was a very interesting um way for for them to slow down and to reflect. and every time they press the record button to to really be quite clear on what it is they're recording. and therefore, even though there was an element of play, there was also an element of rigor and an element of slowing down and an element of, you know, really trying to sort of extend your attention span and reflect on on the world. And I found that 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 technique um, yielded some some very interesting results. And, you know, when the children would come back with their footage and we would look at it and and talk about what they filmed, um, it it opened up all kinds of topics and conversations that, you know, previously when I was was just talking to them, you know, using words, um, we we just could not breach. And so there was something about that that visual expression and that creativity, uh, but also also combined with um, some kind of a basic structure um, and and a sense of of rigor um, that together um, you know led led to just very very interesting conversations and and I I certainly had the sense that you know I learned a lot from it and I think the children also learned a lot not so much from me but from the process, you know, from, from the activity that they were immersed in that was very different from, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that they would typically be asked to to do in schools. Um, and so I think a lot of this is not necessarily rocket science. You know, a lot of this is simple techniques that allow us to to break this collective spell, you know, that um, that we are under in, in the Anthropocene and that perhaps, you know, education in many cases uh, strengthens rather than helps to break, a, break away from
1: it seems uh, there are a few things there that you identify that I think are really important. One is importance of not deciding what you're going to learn before you learn it. That you're open to the terrain, to the unexpected, as you say. There's a rigor at the same time. You, you haven't prescribed what you're going to teach them. They're teaching themselves, which is another really important part. Like when you end up teaching yourself, or uh, and then sharing that with others, and it kind of really stays with you. I think that's so important. You know, you've used this technology to teach. And yet one of your books is why technology won't save us. I I know it's not the most technological, you know, of devices, Mm -hmm. cameras. It's not like some of these other technologies. But it's interesting that you're using technology for the positive. You're not including that in the kind of technologies that you discuss in that book.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the the title "Why Technology Won't Save Us." I mean, it's it's deliberately provocative, um, and it's it's not meant to suggest that technology plays no role in in the solution to what we are facing. I think we certainly should uh, use all the technology we can that is going to that is going to make the make the problem easier for us to deal with. But my point is that um, the technology itself isn't uh, a solution to the root cause it's it might be a solution to some of the symptoms of the of the environmental crisis and you know and it can be a tool um so you know in the way that i used it in my in my work with children it was it was a tool within a sort of a, a larger um idea a larger larger project but um but it wasn't an end in itself and um and i think that is that is the distinction that I find to be very, very important, you know, given that we are constantly bombarded these days with, you know, news of technological advances, um, you know, just just today, this morning, I, I read an article about how, you know, electric cars are, are going to become dominant, you know, and, and, and overtake cars um, run on petrol and, and diesel, potentially by the end of the decade. And I thought, well, okay, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to learn but then the, the way that this information is presented is that this is the solution right that this is going to um get us out of this out of this crisis you know if only we can roll out electric cars fast enough and if only we can roll out solar and wind fast enough then we'll be able to 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 beat this the issue that we're facing and i believe that even if we had a magic button you know that we could press and that overnight would do away with um you know, all the emissions. Um, I think that in itself actually would not be a solution because sure, it might make the the short term or or you know the medium term threat of climate change go away. but um it's not going to fix our society. It's not going to um, you know do anything about the level of desensitization that um you know we have as a society when it comes to the longer term consequences of our actions. It's not going to fix. Um, our individualism, um, our reluctance to engage in thinking about future generations and intergenerational justice. Um, it's not going to do anything about any of those things because those are cultural, political problems um, that cannot be fixed with technology. We cannot engineer politics or, or culture. And so I think that is that is the, uh, f- for me, the, the fundamentalist distinction that, you know, as, as long as we are clear that the technology is here, to help us treat the symptoms then sure let's let's go ahead and and treat all the symptoms we can but let's not forget that um, it's not doing anything about the underlying causes and that those need to be treated because if they're not sooner or later they're going to catch up with us again in some form
0: My name is Alana Brownell and I'm a collaborating podcaster with the One Planet Podcast. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and will be beginning my master's in primate behavior and conservation at the University of Roehampton in London this September. I was drawn in by Peter's insight regarding the usage of technology to simply treat the symptoms rather than the root causes of Earth's problems. We often struggle to look inward as a species and examine the consequences of our actions and the missteps in the ways our society is structured. And Peter put it extremely well, we cannot engineer politics or culture. Many societies, particularly Western ones, must reimagine how we do things and try to become more altruistic and less destructive. Additionally, I appreciate his incorporation of indigenous thought and knowledge to inform his own research and ideas, considering indigenous folks support 80% of global biodiversity. This is something that I strive to do in my own work, and especially as anthropologists, we must recognize that we are entering spaces in which we are simply visitors and have no claim to. Now, back to the interview with Peter Satoris and Mia Funk.
1: yes it doesn't address the fact uh, the consumer culture and the it seems like as you say you know what it's just replacing a dirty technology with a clean technology but not addressing the fact that as some and many feel and practice that the earth is there for our just extraction of whatever we can get out of it and i think you know, you've certainly traveled around the world, uh, particularly in India and South Africa, and you've seen people who are dealing with enormous um, problems of pollution. And I think also you've encountered indigenous societies who uh, live in greater harmony with the environment, but who are also seeing uh, destruction of their ecosystems. So, uh, you know, what have you learned from those experiences?
2: A lot. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the word humility wasn't a word that I that I thought of, uh, you know, before before I started engaging in this research. It was a word that emerged through through um, engaging with these these communities, and you know, realizing that um, there's a lot to be learned um, from them. We tend to think of um, low income countries as sites of intervention, places that need our help. Um, but I think I've, I've emerged from, from my work thinking that perhaps more than sites of intervention, you know, they're, they're often sites of inspiration. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't need intervention. That that doesn't mean that we should romanticize them and that we should sort of look to indigenous people as, uh, as a solution that, you know, if we were all to adopt this lifestyle, that this would solve the problem. Uh, I think we also need to be careful about, about sort of. You know, not not turning these communities into sort of museum pieces that that you know we can we can look at and um, and study uh, and and recognize that they are people just like ourselves. That their culture evolves. That it's dynamic. That they themselves oftentimes have goals and and ideas about how they would like their own culture or society to to evolve. So you know, I think with with all that in in, in mind, though, I think there's still a lot to be learned and. Um, that's that's partly because um a lot of these communities in places like india and and south africa but also lots of lots of other countries i mean many many of them are experiencing what i call in my second book educating for the anthropocene um accelerated time you know that they're in some ways living the future you know they're living what you know those of us living in london or paris you know might be might be living in a few decades um they're already experiencing it in real time so so they sort of see what the future holds in a, in a certain sense um and that forces them to really grapple with existential questions around what does it mean to to face existential environmental threats um what does that say about um our world that we have arrived at a point uh you know where you know we 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 might be the, the cause of our own extinction so I think these questions uh, just become a lot more real, uh, you know, in in the face of, uh, you know, the the kinds of things that that some of these communities face on a daily basis. And I therefore found it very very inspiring to talk to them and, and to learn about their thinking uh, around around this. And you know, in in academia, uh, some some scholars have called this um, environmentalism of the poor the idea that there is there is a difference between the environmentalism of the rich and the environmentalism of the poor and you know, that these are these are two different strands and not to say that it's a binary distinction, but but there is certainly um, certainly a difference. And I suppose in, in my work, um, I just found that, you know, environmentalism of the poor is a very, very interesting, fascinating subject, uh, and that we in the global north, uh, you know, uh, would, would do well to, to listen to the environmentalists in the in the global south. And, um, and learn from them about how to how to deal with this crisis. And a lot of my ideas um, emerged through these through these conversations.
1: And that uh, you alluded to visions of development, and what you'd learned, uh, and I believe it, you analyzed over uh, 250 documentaries in the process of that. Uh, and just what did you learn going into to that? And how did that change your vision of development?
2: So, uh, Submissions of Development was my was my first book, which is was more of a history project. It was looking at um, India in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties, uh, so the first two decades of independence from Britain, and trying to understand um, the kind of vision of modernity and vision of development that um, the governments of that period. Um, were trying to to sort of bring into being through their through their policies uh, but I was particularly interested in, in studying the cultural expression of that uh, of that imagination. Um, and so I discovered that um, there was um, an institution still is uh, an institution called the Films division of India which is a government filmmaking unit uh, which made thousands and thousands of short films over the years that were addressing various aspects of development and that were screened in, in cinemas um, across, across India. Um, in, in those years, it was compulsory that before the main feature, um, a government film had to be shown. And uh, Film Division of India was supplying those, those films. And what I learned from them really was that um, there was a certain elitism in the vision of development or divisions of development um, at, at that sort of post-colonial moment in, in history. Um, and that you basically had a group of elites, you know, most of whom were male, upper class, upper caste, urban dwellers, many educated in the west, um, politicians and and senior civil servants who uh, who were basically pushing the country in a particular in a particular direction, which was actually very different from the direction that um, Gandhi, for example, envisioned for for India. Um, and that these films basically became a tool for trying to convince the country at large that this this type of industrial modernity that the country was embracing um, was the way to go. There was no space for dialogue, there was no space for co-creation or or trying to somehow um, actually engage the quote-unquote masses in this this conversation. Uh, It was simply presented to them as the, the solution. And so what I ended up arguing in the book was that this is in some ways a, an example of an authoritarian tendency within, within that, that regime. So even though it might have been a democracy, you know, and people were able to vote for their leaders, um, ultimately there was this, this sort of cultural effort uh, to push out alternatives and to establish a single way of thinking about, about development. And that history, um very much also shaped my second book and that this new third book that i'm working on now and and, you know a lot of the lot of the work that i that i'm doing around sustainability um because i think fundamentally what we're what we're seeing in the world right now isn't actually all that different i think we are essentially asked to accept a certain definition of sustainability uh which is handed down to us by the elites um you know we are not um expected to question that um, and, you know, the education system is, is one part of one one way through which that that happens, you know, this handing down of that agenda. And in, in this way, I think, you know, sustainability has almost become uh, a form of Orwellian doublespeak, you know, that it's it's really sort of stands for the opposite of what it once stood for. Uh, once it stood for the sustainability of the natural environment and the planet and, you know, um, some, some form of intergenerational justice. And I think now it stands for the sustainability of um, transnational neoliberal capitalism. Um, so, you know, and obviously those two things are at odds with one another. So I think what what happened in India in the fifties and the sixties um, actually uh, is is a dynamic that that wasn't unique to that time and place, and it is a dynamic that that we very much see unfolding unfolding today, and and which I would argue is a is a big part of the issue.
1: And yes, it's true. It is a kind of double speak or euphemism for something else, as you say, trying to maintain the status quo uh, with uh, with the least amount of sacrifices for the, in the developed world, or as you say, who are living through it now more acutely, are in, in the developing world. And you mentioned something earlier. I was wondering what drew you to anthropology, and you uh, differentiate visual anthropology with perhaps some other approaches? I mean, how, how, why do you choose to do it through film? As I imagine, maybe some other approaches are like intellectual or a bit dry and removed or maybe not having that real life detail.
2: So, you know, even though I I consider myself an anthropologist, I'm I'm very interdisciplinary. Uh, I actually believe that fundamentally these divisions between disciplines are also a little bit obsolete at this point. And when we work on real world questions, real world issues, um, we, we need different lenses and we need different approaches. The lens that anthropology offers for me is the, the one that is the closest to how I do research, which tends to be you know, immersing myself in a community of people, trying to really understand what is going on in that community, um, you know, in 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 some sense trying to become a bit of an insider. Uh, in, in that community, uh, you know, understand the culture of it, and uh, you know, really, really think about complexity, and you know, build relationships with with people, trying to have some kind of reciprocity in the in the research process, so that it's not just extractive. And I think ethnography, which is which is the way that anthropologists do research, um, to to my mind, is is the closest to to being able to accomplish these goals. Um So that that's why I align myself with anthropology as a as a discipline. But ultimately, I don't I don't think that you know there there are any disciplines that can claim to have a monopoly on you know the best approach or the best method. You know I think even you know within within anthropology we would do well to collaborate with other disciplines and and approaches. And this is also, I think also where visual anthropology comes in, um, which very much tries to bring in this focus on creativity visualization trying to get beyond the you know spoken or written word and um really really think about visual visual expression um as a as a form of um communication um as a a kind of data that actually can drive you know the research the research that we that we do um and i suppose particularly in my case because a lot of the a lot of the work i do is with young people Visual, visual ethnography or visual anthropology is particularly suitable to those to those conversations because, like David McDougall, the uh, ethnographic filmmaker whom I um, mentioned earlier, uh, I also believe that that young people and, and children, in, in general, different generations, possess knowledge that um, might be difficult to, to communicate verbally, and, and that we need other forms of expression. Uh, that that allow us to, to to sort of build bridges, you know, between between generations, between cultures, between different ways of making sense of the world. And so I think that's where visual anthropology has has a lot of potential and a, and a lot to offer. Um, I wouldn't say it's the mainstream way of doing anthropology. It's I think a fairly marginal um, sort of subfield within within anthropology at the moment. But um, certainly, I, I personally think that it is It is one that you know deserves to be to maybe receive more attention than it's currently receiving.
1: and it seems that behind all of your work, there is this search or quest for how we might each live more examined lives. I'm wondering what your approach to ethics is.
2: Well, uh, another very big question so in uh, um, in my more recent work, I ground a lot of the a lot of the sort of more philosophical aspects of it in the work of Hannah Arendt, uh, as the philosopher and, and historian who did a lot of work on um 20th century Europe totalitarian regimes in, in 20th century Europe, you know, asking questions about how those regimes came to be, what enabled them, what made them possible. And for me, her work raises questions about Sort of, you know, again going back to this idea of elites versus so-called masses, uh, you know, the, the question of sort of the individual's um, agency, moral agency, having an internal compass, as opposed to uncritically um, believing something that is being handed down to me from uh, the, the current system that that I'm I'm a part of. Um, and so I think what's what's really interesting about Hannah Arendt is is this concept of bureaucratization that when we become bureaucratized, uh, when we basically allow ourselves to be turned into these these cogs in, in a larger machinery, then we stop asking ourselves what larger agendas our actions contribute towards, and this is this is how you can end up with a totalitarian regime which relies on um uh, large parts of the population being bureaucratized to the point that it stops questioning it stops asking these these larger questions about the morality of what is happening and i think this is where again we can see some parallels with the with the anthropocene and that you know m- many of us are basically un- unwitting unknowing accomplices in the destruction of the natural environment without ever consciously making a decision um to to be complicit in that, uh, in that process. And that means, you know, that we have essentially allowed ourselves to be in some ways turned into these these cogs in a, in a certain machine and that we've basically outsourced our ethics, um, that we have stopped thinking about the kind of larger ethics of, um, you know, what is the real consequence of what our accumulated collective actions lead to. And so I think for me, ethics has a lot to do with being able to, to kind of hold that distinction, you know, between what my society is telling me uh, is right, and you know, m- me myself being being able to to examine that and um, and to not just ask questions, but to have the moral courage to also, in in some cases, act differently from the way that I am being told is is the uh, you know the way to be the way to act. Um, which again, I don't think is something that our education system emphasizes. I don't think it particularly tries to help us develop moral courage. For example, I don't think that is that is a virtue that is that is really thought about as a central part of what education should be. But I but I believe that it again deserves to be more more of a focus. So you know, again, this is a, this is a very big question. So I could talk about this for a long time. But I think these are just some of the main main themes that influence my thinking about about ethics.
1: Oh, it's so important, the moral courage. And yes, it's not emphasized nearly enough. And those are so many wonderful points. And so as you think about the future and you reflect upon, about the kind of world you want to live in, uh, you reflect on our ch- the challenges we face, on the progress we've made, and you've discussed how you'd like us to evolve our education models. You've already discussed how you like some of our systems to evolve, but just in closing, you know, what kind of world do you want to live in?
2: I would say certainly a world in which there is more participation um, by, you know, a greater number of people in in actually having a conversation about the future. Uh, You know, a, a world that is... Uh, more inclusive in its future making practices if you if you want to put it in in those words Um, because I think that that is what democracy should be Uh, I think democracy should be about um, you know people actively getting involved in these in these conversations I I do believe you know that fundamentally you know humanity um, is capable of thinking about future generations of thinking about the planet, the natural environment with compassion. And I think in, in some ways, maybe that is actually the, the, the default, you know, with which we approach these these questions. I think most of us, you know, if we were transported, you know, to the to the places of environmental destruction and devastation, if everyone could see some of the things that I was able to see in my field work, I think they would be moved. I think they would they would be affected by it at probably quite a deep level. I, th- I think that's true of most people. And and so i think if if that is the starting point you know that we have this kind of baseline compassion you know for for the living world if we are then able to channel that you know into these into these collective conversations that we might have about about the future that we would we would have a different future and that we would have a stronger healthier more functioning um democracy if we allow ourselves to think of radical alternatives you know radically different futures uh, from some of the futures that are being presented to us by our elites so that that is the world that i would like to live in and, and that i i hope you know the education would also have education system would have some role in in bringing into being
1: Oh, me too. I want to live in that world. And just in closing, as a documentary maker, as an anthropologist, you know, what are some of those lessons that have been important to you that you would like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: Um, I'd say that uh, one key lesson is to is to basically stay connected to our imagination. Um, I've I've certainly seen. You know, with a lot of young people, what what happens is that you know as they as they grow up, they tend to maybe get disconnected from their imaginations because you know, um maybe maybe the kind of radically different worlds that they imagine as kids, um, you know, they they no longer seem feasible when they go through the school system and they're told you know that the world functions in a certain way. Um, so I, I would just say, just hold on to that. you know, hold on to those those ideas that that you had as a little kid about you know the kind of world that you would like to you would like to see you know they're they're not embarrassing they're not ridiculous they are not unrealistic so on all of these things that the society tells us uh about our quote-unquote childish imagination i i think they're not true i think we need to resist that narrative and yeah, and, and and just and just embrace that, you know. And I think as adults also have a lot to learn from from kids in in this in this way. So yeah, I would just say, you know, um, staying connected to our imaginations and letting those imaginations also fuel the hope for the future. I think is probably the best antidote to to some of the despair, you know, that our current predicament tends to tends to create.
1: Well, what a beautiful and important message. So thank you, uh, Peter Satoris, for your work as a thought leader, your insights into the Anthropocene and how we might reimagine the future, evolve our values and education systems so that we might make the world a better place for all living beings. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Alana Brownell. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program, and if you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.